I could have entitled uh, this message, Why I Still Read and Listen to the News, because that is, in a way, what we're going to be talking about this morning. Over the last uh, number of weeks, we've been talking about basically how to respond to the craziness in our world these days. And we've spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 13 talking about what Paul has to say about love being patient, love being kind, and what that really means. And then last week began looking again at the book of Acts, and I'm trying to lay a foundation for moving forward in Acts, because Acts provides, in a sense, the historical context for the love that we're called to exercise. It's a love that we're called to exercise between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And what I'd like to do is uh, this Sunday talk about one of the points that I made last week and expand on it a little bit since I only briefly mentioned it. And so if you would look at verses 32 through 35. This is just a portion of what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples when he made a comment leaving the temple that it was going to be torn down. It was going to be be flattened one day. And the disciples followed up with some questions about when that was going to happen and when his uh, coming and the end of the age was going to be. And so what he says here is part of his answer to their question about when is the temple going to be destroyed, when is he coming back, and when is the end of the age. And what he says in verse 32 of Matthew 24 is, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You notice in verse 32, the first thing he says is, learn. That's actually a command, which means that God wants us to really think about what the implications are uh, with regard to all that Jesus is saying about his return. And the picture that's being painted here of a fig tree blossoming in anticipation of summer. He says, learn, that's a command, learn this parable, a parable The idea there is placing one thing alongside another thing in order to teach a lesson. So the idea of the parable of the fig tree is that it pictures something else. It's not about fig trees. It's about all the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus is talking about with regard to what will happen before he comes back. He says, learn the parable of the fig tree. And when you begin to see the things that he's been talking about in Matthew 24, then recognize, which means know and embrace it with joy, that his coming is near. And near means at hand. It means it's within reach. It's close enough that you can touch it. And he says, this generation will not pass away uh, before all those things take place. Once you begin to see them happening, it will happen within a generation. And a generation was 30 to 40 years. So within a relatively short amount of time, once these events begin to take place, they will take place very rapidly, relatively speaking. 
And so what I'd like to do is just touch on a few things this morning before we move on. And the first thing is that obviously when the Lord Jesus commands us to learn the parable of the fig tree, it's telling us that God wants us to think about the end of all things. Now that phrase, the end of all things, reminds me of the Lord of the Rings because that's, if you know the story, the two little hobbits after the, the ring has been destroyed, um, in Mordor, they're sitting on this rock, reflecting, and basically Frodo tells Sam, um, I'm glad I'm with you, Sam, here at the end of all things. And according to the story, what is the end of all things? The end of all things is the destruction of evil. That's symbolized by the destruction of the ring. And it's a huge change in the world. That's going to result in the king returning and ruling and reigning. And what's interesting about that story is, if you know the story, Gollum, who's an evil character, plays a key role in the destruction of evil. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But it's very, very clear that God wants us to think about the end of all things, that it's important. Um, Martin Luther said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Today and the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns. And we might ask ourselves, why is that important? Well, last week we talked about the Great Reset. The Great Reset is a very published agenda by world leaders and business leaders in which they actually believe through the advancement of technology and through global cooperation that they can deal with the world's problems and actually usher in a kind of utopia. And we argue that from Scripture, uh, you see in Scripture the theme of the city of Babylon, which is the city that's against God, that exalts itself against God and seeks to establish a utopia apart from God. And that's the kind of thing that's being reflected in what they call the Great Reset. But we focused last week on the reality that the true Great Reset, the true Great Change, is the return of Christ. Man will fail in establishing a utopia on earth. But God will not. That is exactly what's going to happen in the return of Christ. It will be the kingdom of heaven on earth. Well, if we ask the question, why talk about this, especially in light of the fact that myself and others are a little hesitant to talk about end times things for several reasons. One is there's so much disagreement. I'm probably going to say a lot of things today that you will not agree with. And that's really okay. Because people, you know, in the church have been disagreeing for, you know, thousands of years over exactly how it's going to play out. But there's also the reality that it's been 2,000 years and people say, well, you know, when is he ever going to come again? It's been 2,000 years, you know, maybe he's never going to come. And then you've got the reality of people like Harold Camping who tell you exactly when he's going to come and it doesn't happen. Or you've got QAnon and other conspiracy theories that are telling you about all the kinds of things that are going on, and it just makes talking about in things like talking about conspiracy theories that really don't have any basis in reality. 
when the reality is, according to the scripture, that God talks a lot about the end times. And therefore, what does God want to talk about? Whatever we find in the Bible is what God wants to talk about. And he likes to talk about the end times. And he actually commands us to learn the parable of the fig tree, which means he wants us to think about end times and the end of all things. And and why is that important? Well, one reason is, if you look at verse 14, the Lord Jesus in this passage in Matthew 24 characterizes the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. He doesn't say the gospel is the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, though it is. He doesn't say it's the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, though it is. He says it's the gospel of the kingdom. And if you read through the preaching of Jesus in the gospels, that is the emphasis with regard to his preaching of the gospel. So what does that mean? It means what we'll celebrate next Sunday, especially on Easter, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is all about the kingdom that's coming. That Jesus lived the life we could never live, Jesus died the death we deserve to die. Jesus rose from the dead, and now he rules and reigns over everything. And one day he will return, judge all men, and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about the end. It's about the end that is the new beginning. And therefore you can't proclaim the gospel without talking about the end of all things. That is really... Like C.S. Lewis said, the beginning of all things, the beginning of all that God truly has promised us in Jesus. And so the gospel requires us to talk about those things. Uh, what's going on in our world today is kind of prompts us to think about it. Not that we necessarily have to proclaim we're the last generation, because we don't know that yet. But we can look at things going on in our world and say, you know what? That sounds like that's moving in the direction that the Bible says we're eventually going to get to. And that is a helpful thing in various ways. Because the Bible moves us toward love through all that it says. So if the Bible talks a lot about the end times, to be a better mother means you need to think more about the end times. To be a better father, you need to think about the end times. To be a better uh, employee, you need to think about the end of all things. Because Peter says in Second Peter 3, looking for the new heavens and new earth, we are to grow in holiness and godliness. And so the idea that I can just ignore what is to come and still grow as I should betrays the fact that the Bible tells me, no, I need to be concerned like Martin Luther said about today, but also have in view that day when Christ comes, if I want to live today as God calls me to more and more. And the Bible indicates, uh, most importantly, that we all need to be ready. And that's what the proclamation of the gospel is about, which brings me to the second point, that this is uh, Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is the Sunday um, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. But it's helpful in light of all that we're talking about right now to realize that you can think about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ in terms of those two rides. 
Yesterday we saw Molly do some barrel racing. And so she had a ride that she had to ride. There are all kinds of rides. There's barrel racing rides. There's riding down the street in a parade. So not every ride is the same. It's the same way in this regard. Jesus, uh, on Palm Sunday, uh, we are told, for instance, in Matthew 21, his ride then on a donkey was characterized this way. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So what's the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey? A donkey was used to serve. It was a beast of burden. It was a help to people. It carried loads that other people could not carry or did not want to carry. And so Jesus pictures himself in his first coming as coming to serve, coming to save, coming to lay down his life on the cross. But if you read in the book of Revelation, he will come again, and he's pictured as coming not on a donkey, not on a beast of burden, but on a white horse. Have you ever seen the the, uh, movie War Horse? That's what's being talked about here, because it says in Revelation 19, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, speaking of Jesus, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So the first time he came, riding on a donkey to serve and to save, the second time he will come back to judge and to make war. It's a big difference between the two, an important difference between the two. Someone told a story uh, to picture the differences between the two in this way. Uh, Back years ago in a frontier town, Uh, There was a horse and wagon uh, that ran off with a little boy in the wagon. And this young man risked his life to stop the horse and stop the wagon and save the little boy. Well, as the story goes, the little boy grows up and he becomes a lawless person. And he commits a serious crime. And he stands before the judge and he realizes that the judge he's standing before is the very man who years ago saved his life. And he appeals to the judge on the basis of that past experience, that past kindness, that past goodness. And he says to him, please have mercy on me. And the judge said this in response, young man, then I was your savior. Today I am your judge and I must sentence you to be hanged. There's a difference between one day and another day. It's a difference between what Jesus was doing at one point and what he will do at another point. And that's the difference that we see here reflected in these two rides. Someone has summarized the the point of that story by saying, Jesus will say, in essence, on the day of judgment to those who have not turned to him for mercy, During that long day of grace, I was the Savior, and I would have forgiven you. But today I am your judge. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Very sober, sober thing. So there's a big difference between the two, and yet an important difference between the two. And God tells us the difference between the two, that we might be ready, that we might receive Jesus as the Savior that he offers himself to us to be. 
The third thing is that as we think about um, Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we not only can see it in terms of a ride, but we can see it in terms of giving birth. And um, Becca's on the way to giving birth. We're looking forward to that as well as hope and others that we know about. Um, what you may not have thought of is that there are points in the scriptures where it talks in ways that actually encourage us to think about the history between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ as giving birth. Uh, for instance, in Matthew 24, um, in verse 8, it says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then in Romans 8, Paul says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, meaning right now, 2,000 years ago, uh, the earth, the creation is in labor, so to speak. And one of the interesting things is that in the New Testament, it uses the phrase the last days to talk about the first century. Even on the day of Pentecost, um, Peter quotes from a prophecy from Joel that says, in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out. So, so when did the last days begin? They began with the first coming of Jesus and with the birth of the church through Pentecost. And so we've been in the last days since the first coming of Christ. The last days of what? The last days before the kingdom of God on heaven comes and before evil is destroyed. Why would that be the case? Well, the way you can picture it is when Adam and Eve sinned, right at that point, God promised a savior. He said the seed of woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. That, you could say, was the beginning of a pregnant history, a history pregnant with the promise that Christ was going to come and was going to destroy evil, destroy Satan. And it began, you could say, the labor uh, began with the first coming of Jesus. But everything's not going to be completed until the second coming of Jesus. So if you think about it in those terms, it's kind of like um, all of history up until the coming of Christ was like um, being pregnant but not being in labor. But then when Jesus comes, labor begins, meaning we're in the last days of the pregnancy. We're in the last days before the kingdom of God comes. And there's early labor And then there's more increased pain, transition, and then there's the giving of birth. And so you can see what the Bible says about the coming of Christ in those terms. And the fig leaves that I'm going to be talking about today that's reflected in the passage in Matthew 24 is like the transition from early labor to actually the the baby coming down the canal and being born. It's like the intense transition. It's the indicators that we are almost there, that the kingdom is almost to be consummated, and Christ is coming back to usher in the kingdom of God. And so the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 says, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, that you are beginning transition, that the baby is going to be here soon. That's why all this pain is coming so intensely 
excuse me, at this time. And he could say in Luke 21, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, near means at hand. It's close enough to reach, but it doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow. It could be a number of years, but it would be within a generation, according to what Jesus said. Well, there's a lot I could say more about that, but let me just um, touch on a few of the things that I have in mind that I think the Lord Jesus highlights in Matthew 24 when it talks about the fig leaves. And the last point is all of this is meant to encourage us to greater faithfulness. It's not just to be enamored with trying to figure out, you know, when Jesus is coming back. It's about wanting to grow in love and being spurred on to grow in love and in and faithfulness because we know Christ is returning. And again, what are we looking for? That, that doesn't mean we're necessarily the last generation, but it does mean that uh, there could be things happening that are clearly moving us in the direction that will ultimately result in the return of Christ. And many of these signs we see in Matthew 24, and I'm going to start there, but I'm going to weave in a few other scriptures that I think add to the picture that we find in Matthew 24. So let me just touch on this briefly, and then you can do your own more in-depth study and see what you think about how I'm understanding this. As I said, eschatology has to be approached with humility, but it should not be avoided. Because if God talks about it, then it's because we need to really think about it and think it through that we might be more faithful and love him and others more. Well, if you look at verses 21 and 22, the way the you could characterize uh, this transition from early labor to the actual giving of birth would be with regard to seeing it as a great tribulation. It says in verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There are some who believe that things are going to get better and that Christ will just return to basically a Christianized world. And I respect a lot of people who take that view. Um, I'm not so sure that that uh, view adequately deals with all that the Bible says, and therefore I don't take that view personally. In um, Revelation 20, and this is also another passage that's highly um, debated over what it actually means, but I think it could be talking about this when it says... When the thousand years are completed, meaning the reign of Christ now between the first and second coming, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. There's no doubt, as we'll see as we look at 2 Thessalonians, that it's a time of increased activity by Satan. There's a sense in which... um, Satan is loosed to do things that God is restraining him from doing right now. And close related to that is the increase of lawlessness. If you look at verse 12, it says, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And so the idea of the transition, the fig leaves, is fundamentally that it's going to be a time of great tribulation, great pressure, great oppression, 
great difficulty in various ways. And one of the aspects of that difficulty and tribulation is the increase of lawlessness. The increase of lawlessness doesn't mean all law is thrown out the window. It means that God's law is thrown out the window increasingly and that people are ignoring the law of God as we see it happening in our own country. Uh, More and more these days redefining marriage, redefining um, gender and all kinds of things. We're just throwing out God's distinctions and God's commandments and actually becoming more hostile to them. It's interesting, um, the comparison between the return of Christ and that time is uh, associated with the flood in the Old Testament. And it says, before the flood, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That appears to be the way it's going to be right before Christ's return at, returns as well. The third thing is that there have, has always been false Christs, but there will be a ultimate false Christ. We can see in Matthew 24, uh, verse 5, where the Lord Jesus says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And many have done that, and will still do that until the end, and will this mislead many. Then it says in verses 23 and 24, actually verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise. And so there are going to be more than one. They've been false Christs from even the first century. And yet the Bible indicates that there will be an ultimate false Christ. And that's reflected in 2 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing the reality in that church that they thought the day of the Lord had already come. And he says, no, it hasn't already come, and I can tell you why. Certain signs have not been fulfilled. And so what he says is, he says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, meaning the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, what you would call the ultimate antichrist. Someone who appears on the scene at the end of all things, opposing God, opposing Christ, and saying that I am the Christ, I am God, worship me. And the Bible indicates that as unbelievable as that is, it will take place. And part of the reason why it will take place is because of the next thing that will happen is signs and wonders. In Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, which it's not, if possible, even the elect. So that during that time, this transition time, this intense time, um, there's going to be supernatural things happening. And those supernatural things are actually going to lead people to worship this man. That's how they come to do so. And that's why it says also in Second Thessalonians, um, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, 
with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So that there will be signs, miracles, that are not just made-up stuff. When it says false, it doesn't mean it's just a magician's trick. It means these are real miracles that are meant to lead you to believe what is false. God is going to allow those miracles to take place, just like he allowed the magicians, so to speak, uh, early on in Egypt. When God was delivering Israel out of Egypt, he allowed up to a point the Egyptian magicians to work the same miracles that Moses was working. God will allow the same thing, those signs and wonders. And why will he do that? The next point is, it will be a time of profound deception. It's amazing as you read through Matthew 24, how often the Lord Jesus highlights the need to be careful not to be misled. He actually starts off in verse 3 of Matthew 24 and, and responding to the disciples' question about, you know, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? In the end of the age, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. And he says something similar. He talks about the threat of being misled in verse 5 when he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. In verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And so there's a theme that says, be careful of being misled. And you can see the same kind of thing in Paul's discussion in 2 Thessalonians 2 when it talks about the fact that this lawless one, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth So as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Which means those who refuse to submit to God and to embrace the gospel and to surrender their lives to God and to embrace the truth, God will give them over to even greater delusion, greater uh, deception. And so it will be a time of profound deception. One of the things that I keep uh, thinking of just in our own day, <clears throat> regardless of how much longer it's going to be before Christ comes back, is it, it's just jaw-dropping to me the kinds of things that people say they believe. Born a man, but I believe I'm a woman. It's just jaw-dropping to me. That is not going to get less toward the end. It will actually increase. Paul could say in 2 Timothy, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And all of that is going to feed into what Paul calls the great apostasy. Uh, The Lord Jesus refers to this in verse uh, 10 when he says of Matthew 24, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. This is so important because um, you think about people who recently have fallen away, like Josh Harris, and you think, how in the world did someone like that just walk away from the faith? 
Well, one of the things that's going to happen <clears throat> during this time of tribulation is people who you think, would think, are believers or professing Christ will walk away. It will happen in all kinds of ways, but I believe that is one of the ways uh, we will see this kind of falling away. It actually says in verse um, 12, lawlessness has increased and most people's love will grow cold. Most people's love will grow cold. That's why Paul, um, actually um, Jude could say, keep yourself in the love of God. Guard your heart. Don't let your love grow cold because that's one of the things that will happen to many uh, during that time. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul makes uh, reference in verse 3 to this apostasy when he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now that apostasy, that falling away, is very closely related to the man of lawlessness. It's closely related to the fact that he's going to say, Worship me, and everything will be great. And so there's connection between all these things that we're talking about. And it's clear from like what we see in Revelation 13 that the man of lawlessness will exalt himself, and the whole world is going to worship him. In Revelation 13, 7, we see a reference to the one world government where it says it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That means a worldwide government. And so it appears, based on what it says in Revelation, that there will be initially a coalition of governments that are ruling the world, just like what is part of the agenda of the Great Reset. But there will be one man who arises out of those nations who will be ultimately followed and worshipped. And so um, it's interesting as we look at what it says, for instance, in the Old Testament as well, in in Daniel, it says this fourth beast who uh, was partially a fulfillment of what we find in the Roman Empire, but seems to be also something that is a foreshadowing of what will happen at the end The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now, for a lot of people, it's still going to be a relatively normal kind of existence, as normal as it can be under a global totalitarian government. Um, And the reason I say that is if you look at Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39, It says, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be just like that when Jesus comes back. People will still be eating and drinking, uh, marrying and giving in marriage. There will still be normal life, just like there was before the flood. And then Jesus will come, and everything will be different. And so we have to realize that that's um, going to be the case as well. In one sense, things are going to be very different. In another sense, it's going to be very normal. It's going to be something that causes 
those who aren't believers to think that everything's fine. That's why it says in 1 Thessalonians um, 5, verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is coming just like a thief in the night, while they are saying, Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. While everyone is saying, Peace and safety. That's actually what the Great Reset with the World Economic Forum is proclaiming. Whether or not this is just the foretaste of what will happen many years from now, I don't know. But that's exactly what they're talking about. Peace and safety, peace and safety. Give up your freedom so you can have peace and safety. That's the whole idea uh, behind what is happening now and is at least pointing toward what we see in the future. Now, the, one of the questions is, how can all this take place? Well, one of the key things is increased knowledge. It says in Daniel 12, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. One of the key elements of what they're calling the Great Reset by the World Economic Forum and others is what they call the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The Fourth Industrial Revolution is very much about technology. It's about combining of uh, technologies um, so that certain things can happen. Uh, Digital technology, physical technology, biological systems that result in things like robotics, artificial intelligence, and things like that that result in incredible achievements like producing organs so that you don't have to worry about waiting for a new organ if you need it. We'll just make it out of 3D technology. If you need a new heart, we'll give you one. If you need a new liver, kidney, we'll we'll just make one for you. And that's why they're saying we believe that we can eradicate disease and we can actually achieve long, long life, if not everlasting life. Those are the kinds of ways they're even talking even now. So it's the idea of using technology to uh, overcome the limitations that we have physically with regard to death and disease. And it's also the way of exercising incredible control. Um, one of the things that's clear in the book of Revelation is that the uh, Antichrist is going to be able to uh, control the buying and selling of things. So that if you're going to buy and sell, you have to worship him. How do you do that? It takes some means of incredible control to be able to do that sort of thing. And the increase of knowledge provides just that. And that's one reason why uh, the Great Reset talks about the Fourth Industrial Revolution, because I really believe now we can control people and nations in such a way that we can eliminate wars, we can eliminate poverty, we can eliminate a disease and death and all those things, and we can bring in a utopia apart from God, but through our own knowledge and efforts. But at the same time, even though for a lot of people this will be, quote, a normal life, so to speak, for believers it will be a time of great persecution. In verse 9 of Matthew 24, it says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. One of the emphases in the Great Reset is LGBTQ um, 
rights. And we see more and more that the threat of Christian persecution is linked to our refusal to embrace that agenda. And it more and more will be the basis for persecution and hostility in various ways. The the last uh, slide in reference to the video that I mentioned last week on eight predictions for the world in 2030, the last one said, Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. What are Western values? Judeo-Christian values. They will be eliminated. And therefore, Christians will be persecuted for those very values. That's why it says in Daniel 7, I kept looking and that horn, which is a representation of the Antichrist, ultimately was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, persecuting them, killing them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So ultimately the saints are not defeated, but they will be overcome for a time before we inherit the kingdom that God has prepared for us from the foundation of the earth. A few more things real quickly here. Great persecution will not stop the completion of the Great Commission. As we've seen over and over in the history of the world, persecution oftentimes just causes the gospel to spread. And it will be the same thing at the end. Because Jesus says in verse 14, the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. God will restrain the devil until... Uh, everything is completed that needs to be completed. He will let the devil loose in a sense, and yet the gospel will still be um, taken to the ends of the earth. And uh, even in the persecution, uh, it says in Revelation that uh, until the last martyr dies, Christ is not coming back, but the gospel is going to be preached to the end of the earth. The last martyr will give his life and then Christ will return. And one of the groups that's going to benefit from the proclamation of the gospel during this time, it appears to be the Jewish people. That there's going to be a great revival among the Jewish people. It says in Romans 11, uh, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, then, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean that every single Jewish person living at that time will come to Christ, but it does mean that it will be a turning to Christ in unprecedented numbers, in very obvious ways, before Christ returns. It says in Hosea 3, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord, their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Well, the last thing is there will be great catastrophes. Regardless of what the Great Reset wants to do with regard to controlling the climate and preventing uh, environmental catastrophes, it says in Matthew 24, verse 29, um, that the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That God's response to the rampant evil, that God's response to the persecution of his people will be 
great catastrophes that's, that are temporal judgments on sin and sinners and actually a warning of the judgment to come. And so that's why I could say in Luke 21, the Lord Jesus says there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You know, throughout history, people have asked the question, uh, is, you know, are we... Uh, at the point where Christ could come again, and, and are we really close to the return of Christ? Well, the implication of all these things, if we apply the parable of the fig tree, the Lord Jesus says there are fig leaves that are going to be produced on the fig tree. And when you see this fig tree blossoming in all these ways, there will be no doubt. You will know that the return of Christ is within reach within your generation. Now, are we there yet? I have no idea. We won't know that until a lot more is fulfilled. It could be 500 or 1,000 years from now. I don't know. But the Bible tells us to look. Why? So that we'll be faithful. The Lord Jesus, his ultimate goal in telling us these things, it says in Matthew 24, um, Verses uh, 45 and 46 is, he says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So how do you get ready for the return of the king? You become like those two little hobbits in the Lord of the Rings. You commit yourself to the destruction of evil. How do you commit yourself to destruction of evil? You surrender your life to the king. You confess your sin, which is evil, and you ask God for mercy, and you give your life to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You surrender your life to the king, and then you live your life to serve the king. You live your life to turn away from sin and to do the will of God. And that's how you're ready. That's how you are a faithful and sensible servant. And that's why Psalm 2 ends this way. It says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Father, for anyone here today who has yet to bow the knee to Jesus, to confess their sins, to ask you for mercy, and to entrust themselves to you, Lord Jesus, and to receive you as their Lord and their Savior, I pray that you grant them grace to do so even this day. And I pray for all of us here who have laid down our weapons, surrendered ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, as our Lord and as our King, I pray that you'd help us to even be more diligent to look for your return and more diligent to seek to be faithful and to learn more about what that looks like in our everyday lives. We thank you that one day evil will be destroyed, that one day there will be heaven on earth, and it will be when you return, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said,
Amen.